Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3 is where we are again today. And it is where we'll be next week. Uh, I had to file an extension on this little section of uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, so next week I'll be preaching on this passage again, uh, part 3 of 3. And uh, Tyler will pick it up the week after that. But there's just so much to say, I couldn't stop myself. And I'm curious, uh, Greg, based on your own standard, are you an old face or no? <laughs> okay, all right, we're getting there, all right. I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> so 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we'll be today, and how about I pray, and then we will get into uh, unpacking the text. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have set aside uh, the first part of the first day of the week. Uh, Lord, we come to You giving You the first fruits of our time on Your day. This is the Lord's day. Help us to have a great study today as we look into Your Word and to understand more about Your program, how You've called us to live in this new covenant that You've placed us in, that we'd be faithful and uh, like we just sang about, that we'd have servants' hearts. God, we ask that together, that I would not get in the way of Your Word this morning, but that Your Word would be clear to your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we're going through 2 Corinthians 3, we started the conversation last week about the role of the law in Christian living and how the new covenant ministry is different than the old covenant ministry. So we're picking up on, on that same note as we begin this week. I do want to have this clear in our minds from the beginning, though. I want this to be absolutely clear to each one of us, is that as we consider the law, the law that was given to Israel, the law that we read about in the Old Testament, it must be understood that the law was never given as a means of salvation, okay? Just in case that's unclear in anybody's mind, God never had the intended purpose with the law to justify anybody. But justification has always been by faith. Why was the law given? Uh, this is a question that Paul asks and answers in one of his own letters in uh, Galatians. He asks the question, well, why the law? Okay, well, let's hear the answer, right? He says it was given because of transgressions. The law was added, the law was introduced to human beings because of sin, the law comes along and defines sin. It gives a lot of definition to sin, doesn't it, as you read through all those laws and commandments that were given to Israel. And we find in Paul's theology in the New Testament that the law wasn't just there to define sin, but to keep people captive in sin's power. The law functioned as an exposing mechanism that people would know that they're sinners and that they would know every day that ends in why, that they are sinners who cannot save themselves. The law exposed man's inability to bring about his own righteousness, and it functioned in that old covenant exclusively made with national Israel as their law that reminded them of sin each and every moment of every day. But salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone. One of the keystone, foundational verses in all of the Bible is Genesis 15, 6. 
In Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abram believed God and it was credited to him or accounted to him as righteousness. So even before the law was added, before the law was introduced, going all the way back to Abram, justification, salvation has always been by grace through faith. The law was added because of transgressions. And it was added in that conditional covenant made with Israel. But in all covenants, salvation has been by faith. With all of that in mind, let's get into the text, starting in verse 4. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory of that which surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So I want to just give you up front here several summary statements about this passage I just read, and then we'll go back in and and dig in more verse by verse. But as I said last week, and you'll hear me say over and over again today and next Sunday, Christian living and Christian ministry is not defined by tablets of stone. Letters engraved in stone, Christian living, Christian ministry is not defined by the law. But instead, Christian living and Christian ministry is defined by the new covenant gospel of grace. The law was given to Israel. The law was not given to the church. And the law as law... Okay, we'll define what that means as we go along. But the law, as a law, belongs to a former covenant. It belongs to the covenant made at Sinai, the old covenant. Consider this passage I just mentioned in passing last week. I'll read it for you today. It's Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. The psalmist says, He, God, declares His words to Jacob. Okay, we are not Jacob. But at this time, the psalmist is saying, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. So a psalmist who is quite happy to be a Jew, as you would be at that time too, God's covenant people. Though you were under the law, at least You were a part of God's nation and had received God's words and God's revelation. He had not given His law to any other nation. He had only given His law to Israel. And last week we looked at too how the law functioned as a guardian. In Galatians chapter 3, the law was a guardian that held people captive until Christ. And now that Christ has come and that the gospel has been displayed through the work of Christ, we are no longer under a guardian. That's the language of the New Testament. We are no longer under a guardian. So as Christians, 
obligation to law has been replaced with obligation to Christ, namely the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are sanctified through the lordship of Christ, and we're sanctified by grace alone. Aren't we thankful that our Lord is a Lord of grace? And we are sanctified under the lordship of Christ through grace alone. So what Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians 3 is explaining that his ministry is one of the Spirit, and his ministry is of the Spirit in the new covenant. His ministry is not one of engraved stones. His ministry is not one of law, but his ministry is one of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, not of the legalistic code. Paul contrasts the new covenant ministry with the law in this passage that I just read. He says that as Christians, we are not servants or ministers of a life-taking law, but that we are ministers and servants of the life-giving Spirit. You see that in verse 6? Verse 6 is really important in this passage. We are not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter takes life. The letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. So what is the function of the law? What does the law do? Well, unlike grace, the law only leads to pride or to despair. The law makes sin abound, is what the New Testament says. The law, the commandment came in that sin would abound. And it abounds because you either do a good job in your own mind of keeping it, and you think, woohoo, my head's so big, I can barely fit through the doorway, you know, I'm just great. Or, if you're honest with yourself, you realize you fail over and over and over again. The law leads to either pride or despair. The law cannot enable a person to be sanctified. So the law has this limited use. And in God's program, the law had a specific function in Israel for a limited time. There was an expiration of the law as law to God's people. The person and work of Christ now is the governor over God's people, and we are sanctified by His grace. We also looked last week at Ephesians 2, where it says that the law, as law, has been abolished to allow for reconciliation. The Holy Spirit now leads Jews and Gentiles, and we made the point last week of Gentiles as Gentiles, to be ministers of a new covenant. You Gentiles don't need to become Jews under the law to be ministers of the new covenant, but you get to come as you are and be forgiven, and you're not regulated by the tablets of stone. You're regulated by the lordship of Jesus Christ. The law, as the governor of God's people, has been replaced by the lordship of Christ. So today, I want to continue clarifying distinctions between these covenants, between the ministry of the law, between the ministry of the Spirit, hopefully following Paul's lead here as he's inspired by the Spirit, and I am not, and uh, see how Paul describes law and spirit ministry distinctions using glory language. Maybe you picked up on that in verses 7 through 11. The word glory comes up not a few times. (laughs) So let's talk about these different glories. I think we do well to start with the question, why glory at all? Why is Paul even using glory language, the old covenant glory and the new covenant glory? If you're keeping tabs as you're counting through your translation, in the five verses of 7 through 11, five verses, Paul mentions the word glory 10 times. And the word for glory appears well over 100 times in the New Testament. So it's an important word in this passage and in the Bible itself. 
But there's a basic understanding I think we can have as to why Paul is using this glory language. And it's because whether it's old covenant ministry or new covenant ministry, as a product of God, a covenant is going to be glorious. If God makes a covenant, no matter what the covenant is, no matter how big it seems or small it seems, if God is creating a covenant as a product of God, a covenant is glorious. And what this does as we recognize this walking through this text is that it keeps us in our place before we get too chummy and start criticizing Moses or the law. Paul is keeping us in our place here and making sure we recognize up front that that old covenant, though it is old and it has faded away, it's still glorious. David Garland in his commentary put it this way, Paul does not intend to denigrate Moses and his glory, but wants to stress it so that he can show how much greater is the glory attached to his ministry. I think that's what we're seeing here. When Paul says the old covenant, the commands that were etched in stone, there was a glory there. He wants our minds to elevate that ministry, to elevate that covenant, and not come to it as some sort of judge that's better than Moses, but we come to it saying it was a glorious thing. All of God's covenants have glory, but we're finding here that not all of God's covenants share in the same degree of glory, do they? In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about resurrection, he's talking about the difference between the resurrection life and the carnal, mortal life that we're living now, and the resurrected body that will be glorified, and your current body, which is not. And uh, he pulls some various examples. He talks about all kinds of things uh, as an example that there are different glories. And he says there's a difference between the sun and the moon and the stars. They differ in their brightness. And so there's a difference between the carnal body and the resurrected body. Well, here we're seeing a difference between the old covenant and its law ministry and the new covenant and the spirit ministry. The old covenant with its law ministry is surpassed by the new covenant with the ministry of the spirit. You can think of it in terms of light, like those celestial bodies that put off light. Uh, In fact, you can actually get really bright flashlights today. I... uh, subscribe to some review channels on YouTube that walk me through some products that I'm never going to buy, but I find it interesting that they talk about them. And uh, there's a guy who's always talking about flashlights. And they make these days a flashlight that's up to 100,000 lumens, which, you know, your standard household light bulb is somewhere around 1,000 lumens, give or take. 100,000 lumens. It's like you got to carry a car battery on your back to power the thing and fans, you know, out the wazoo. That's so bright. And so imagine the law, the the ministry of the law in that old covenant as that big, bright flashlight, because it exposed a lot of things, didn't it, about man's heart and about the world. The law exposed sin. But what Paul is saying is if that old covenant ministry is the brightest flashlight you could ever possibly imagine, the new covenant and the ministry of the Spirit is as bright as the sun. You put that flashlight in the sun you don't see it anymore. There's a new glory that has surpassed the former glory. The glory of the Spirit in this new covenant surpasses the glory of the law in that old covenant. And the new covenant ministry in particular has surpassing glory in its promises, in its permanence, in its person, and in its priesthood. You like that? Four Ps. I'm so proud of myself. Let's... uh, 
Let's walk through each one of these. The new covenant glory, its promises surpass that of the old covenant. In the old covenant, there was a little bit of assurance of forgiveness year by year for the Israelites. If you remember, they had to make sacrifices. In fact, there was one big day every year that you can read about in Leviticus 16 where they had to have this day of atonement. And there were a couple of goats involved. There was a bull involved. Sacrifices had to be made. Uh, there was a scapegoat. There were all sorts of stuff was happening. And year after year, priest after priest, those sacrifices had to be made as a temporary get-you-over-to-the-next-year means of assurance of forgiveness for those Jews who believed, who had faith, who participated with faith. But in the New Covenant, praise God, we don't do that anymore. Can you imagine if every year we all gathered in the parking lot with these animals and we stood next to one of the drains and here we go? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, in the New Covenant, we enjoy a once-for-all final sacrifice, don't we? We have a cross that we hold up high because that's where final payment, once-for-all payment was made. And we don't go back and make new sacrifices, but instead we look to the cross and that is the foundation of our assurance of eternal forgiveness. We don't have a get-you-over-to-the-next-year forgiveness. We have a look to Jesus, look to what He has done in our place for our sins, and we have assurance of eternal pardon from God, that we are absolutely innocent in His eyes, totally forgiven because of what Jesus has done. In the Old Covenant, the glorious law, glorious as it was, revealed God's holiness and in so doing, perfectly condemned sinners. So every time you went to the law, you went to the law with the promise that you'd be condemned. You'd go there with that promise. Today, I'm going to go to the law and see that I don't measure up. Today, I'm going to go to the law and see that I cannot do this on my own. I can't impart life to myself. And you see in verse 6 again of our passage how Paul uses the language of killing. You would go to the law to be killed. You would go to the ministry of the law within that old covenant to be killed with guilt, to be tempted to sin more. You would, you would go and it would just put you in utter despair because you knew that you wouldn't be able to escape this cycle of sin. And for people who live in a works righteousness religion, they know this very well. Because if any law is in place for people, they're going to break it. They're going to break it. If there's a standard that reflects truth at all, man's not going to be able to keep it. And it will only lead to utter despair. The law was effective in that old covenant ministry only for convicting. That was the promise, the promise of conviction. Consider Paul's experience with covenanting that he talks about in Romans chapter 7. You remember the apostle says, I was once alive apart from the law. And then the law came in and said, hey, don't covet. And it killed me, Paul said. And all I could do is covet. All I could do is, is, is just think about it and fixate on it, and it just led me into more coveting. The, the commandment came and I died, Paul said. Don't covet. We can reduce it down to two words in English. That will kill you if you are looking to live life under the law, because you cannot do it. As Matthew Ferris has said in that book I mentioned last week, this is a great sentence, 
The fatal weakness of the law is that it enjoined obligation, but provided no transformation. It says, here's what you are to do, or here's what you are to avoid, but it did not give you the power to carry it out. And that's why, if you look at our passage today, down in verse 9, this is a ministry of condemnation. The law, functioning as law in that old covenant, had a ministry of condemning. That's how the law could be defined, by its condemning power. Now, thankfully, as I mentioned, in Israel, there was a gracious provision in the law of those year-by-year sacrifices. Leviticus, as I mentioned, Leviticus 16, that's found in the law. That's the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And Israel had this gracious provision of God year-by-year where they could have a a visual uh, demonstration of their sins being taken care of, but it had to continue. And yet, the general function for Israel and for the whole world of the law in that old covenant was that it would shut them all up under sin. Galatians chapter 3, the law shuts everybody up in sin. That was the general function of this ministry of condemnation. And so, as we consider the promises of the old covenant, the law brings about death and perpetual sacrifices. The new covenant Christ's work applied by the Holy Spirit brings about eternal forgiveness, brings about release from all guilt and shame. And now, as members of the new covenant, the law can't kill you. The commandment comes and says, don't covet, and you're not like Paul dying under the command. But instead, as members of a new covenant... You can hear that word. You can get that instruction from God. And there's a different function now in the new covenant. The law has a different effect on the covenant people of God because it's a new covenant where you actually have transformation power by the Holy Spirit. And we'll get into that more and more. So the new covenant outshines and surpasses the old covenant in glory in its promises. But secondly, it does so in its permanence. The old covenant with its law was set to fade away. Look down at verse 11 with me of our passage. It says in verse 11, For if that which fades away, this is with reference to the law functioning in the old covenant, it did so with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So there was a fading away of the law functioning in the old covenant. The covenant itself was never meant to be forever. But the new covenant does remain forever. The new covenant glory is permanent. As you have come to know God by grace, as you have entered into a relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ, and you live in a new covenant that's defined by grace, not by condemnation, but by justification, not by death, but by life. As you've come to know God in this way, you've experienced the glory of the new covenant, and that glory will never fade away. There will never be Another covenant or, or something that happens in God's program that's, that takes the place of this experience that you've had with God's grace. This is once for all. It's permanent. We're going to enter into the new heaven and new earth with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what has come surpasses what was before in the glory of its permanence. The tablets and their function as law has been put away as the church's obligation. It is not the obligation of the church to obey that which is written in stone in an old covenant. 
Hebrews chapter 8 talks about this when the author of Hebrews was taking a long section where he was quoting the prophet Jeremiah, talking about the new covenant, and he was applying it to God's people today, saying that these spiritual realities of the new covenant have arrived in the person of Jesus. Listen to what he sums up with in verse 13. He says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So the old covenant glory is becoming obsolete. It's disappearing. But the gospel of grace and this new covenant ministry of the Spirit is forever. It will not fade away. It will not disappear. The law of Moses as the law for God's people belongs only to the former covenant, the covenant made at Sinai. The new covenant's glory is not the glory of law. The covenant you are in with God on the merits of Christ alone, the work of Christ alone, that all of God's people, all the church shares in, this covenant that we're in with God, its glory is not based on law. This glory is based on grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's defined that way forever. Thirdly, the new covenant surpasses the old covenant in its glory in its person, or you could also say here in its power. The new covenant surpasses the old in glory in its person and in its power. Think about what the law relies on. The commandments that God gives etched in stone, those commandments rely on your, your performance, the performance of sinners. And how good is that going to go? Not very well. The law relies on the performance of fallen human beings. But the new covenant doesn't rely on the person of you or me or any sinner. The new covenant relies on the work of Jesus Christ, the only one who, human being who has ever lived who is not a sinner. The new covenant relies on His work. How could that not go well for us? The work of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit and power that comes in from outside of us and empowers us. The Holy Spirit, the power of God coming to us and from the inside out, transforming us, causing us to walk in newness of life because of a better person and a better power that's found in this new covenant. It's interesting if you go back to Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, the prophet describes the new covenant that God is making with people as the coming Messiah himself. In Isaiah 49, starting at verse 6, God is speaking here, and this is a messianic prophecy. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Now, that is a huge thing. To restore the tribes of Israel? I mean, what shape are they in today? And God's going to restore them? To raise back up Jacob? to restore the kingdom. We look at that and think, how could that happen in today's world with Israel? And God looks at it and says, nah, it's too small. I want to do more. I will also make you a light of the nations. Notice the translators went ahead and capitalized you for us. This is my Lord speaking to my Lord, right? The Father speaking to the Son. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And that's why we're here today. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, 
Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Jesus himself, the coming Messiah for Israel, the Savior of the world, is given as a covenant for the people. And it's too small a thing that he would be given just for Israel and to restore Israel, though that's going to happen. He's been given to the ends of the earth, a light to the nations. We truly proclaim Jesus as Lord of all the earth, Savior of all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he has replaced that old covenant with himself. He's been given to us as a covenant, a covenant marked by his work of grace. Jesus fulfilled the law, something that could not be done by anyone else. And he took the curse of the law permanently for our freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, for it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now walk in it. God has set you free from the curse of the law. He set you free from being under the law. He set you free from an old covenant. He has become a new covenant to us. He has replaced the old covenant with its governing law. And there's a new ministry now, the Spirit's new covenant ministry, founded on the person and work of Christ as He comes into our lives and we are temples of the Spirit and He empowers us to live the Christ life that's been given to us, one marked by love and grace and servanthood. Jesus is truly higher and better than the law and we tap in to Jesus' life through this new covenant, through Jesus Himself and what He does on our behalf. Through this life that you're living as a Christian, the Holy Spirit is conforming you not to the law, but to Jesus. You are day by day being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You're not being conformed to the image of commandments written in stone, praise God. You're being conformed to your Savior in light of the gospel and through the instruction that we have from Christ's apostles. Commentator Robert Gramacki said this, very short statement, but I love this. The old covenant can be read, the new can be lived. You're being conformed to Jesus Christ, who is given to you as a covenant. Day by day, the Spirit's power conforming you to Jesus with this New Testament instruction we have based on the person and work of Christ. So finally, fourthly, the new covenant surpasses the old covenant in its glory through its priesthood. Through its priesthood. The old covenant was mediated through the Levitical priesthood. As you read through the law, you'll see that it was from Aaron, the tribe of Levi, that you get these priests that exist in Israel. There was one high priest who existed only one at a time in Israel. There was never multiple high priests. There was one high priest who existed, and he was to be a descendant of Aaron. And later on, God makes another covenant. He makes a covenant with Phineas, and he says it'll only be from Phineas's line, Aaron's grandson, that there will be priests rising up in Israel, high priest one after the other, generation after generation. Well, in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the better priest. In the new covenant, we don't appeal to someone who came from Phineas's line to, again, 
hold us over, tie us over to the next generation or even the next year for that matter. But we have a better priest. Jesus Christ is better than a law priest. He's better than a descendant of Phineas. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus wasn't a Levite. Jesus wasn't from Phineas's line as a Levite. But he's a new priest with a new priesthood after an order that preceded the law. Melchizedek's all the way back in Genesis, what, 14? Way before the law, hundreds of years before the law. And Jesus is a priest according to that order. And what you have with a different priesthood is a different law obligation. The priesthood has changed. Therefore, the law and our obligation to it as God's people has changed. With a different priesthood comes a different obligation. So the new covenant declares Jesus to be a better priest. And then what we find, this is just so astounding, in this new covenant as participants, believers in the gospel, participants in the new covenant, you too are a priest. Isn't this something? We look to Jesus as the better priest, the best priest, uniquely functioning as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But you too have been enabled to be a minister in this new covenant because you have a priesthood. All believers, men, women, children, all believers are priests to God. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Revelation chapter 1 says this, He has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. We have been fully accepted on the merits of our great high priest in such a way that now in this new covenant, we become priests and ministers of something new that supplants the function of the law within an old covenant. You are now going out as ambassadors for Christ, priesthood intact, full, total, absolute freedom and justification in God's sight to be an ambassador declaring the gospel, sharing the light of Jesus Christ, as Tyler was reminding us in this evangelism devotional today, that it's, it's our privilege, not just our duty, it is a duty, but it's our privilege to represent this amazing great high priest who has brought about a new covenant with greater promises, with absolute permanence, with greater power. We are ministers of a new covenant on the basis of Jesus' grace, not on the basis of law. So now I want to finish today with this question. I want to answer the question, what do we do with Moses? Do we now pretend, as I mean, we're in this new covenant, do we now pretend like the law doesn't exist? Is that what we do? <laughs> do, we, do we see the Old Testament and say, yeah, well, that's not for us. Off we go. Heaven forbid. We don't do that with the law. We don't do that with the Old Testament, though many do, I think, probably subconsciously. Perhaps some do intently, but we do not do that. Instead, we agree with Paul. 2 Timothy 3.16, for all Scripture is profitable, isn't it? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, training in righteousness. And when Paul said that, you think he had Moses in mind? I would say so. Yeah, he did. He did. So even though here he is in 2 Corinthians 3 saying the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation has faded away, he's not saying, rip it out of your Bible. He's not saying, ignore it. 
He's not saying when you do your Bible reading plan, just skip those passages. Some of you do. (laughs) He says that all Scripture is profitable, and I think there are three main ways, though there are probably more, I'm sure I'm missing, but three main ways that the law of Moses is profitable for us in the church today. First, I see that the law of Moses is profitable for civil government as a wise model for organization and restraining cultural evil. Profitable for civil government. You can look at our nation's founding or other governments that exist, and it's quite clear at some junctures that there was a model based on what God gave Israel. Uh, You look at uh, Moses and his interaction with his father-in-law, Jethro, and Jethro says, you're way too busy. You got to get some people under you here. And that organization that developed and the way that the law functioned in Israel with different people playing different roles, okay? I, I think there's some Uh, profitability in organization for civil governments, but also what laws are we going to have? And what's the heart of those laws? What should be our driving focus for laws in the culture? Well, we are not Israel. We should not adopt uh, the law given to Israel wholesale or advocate for that as the church saying, we need in Payson, Utah to have Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy as the law that, that rules this town. I don't think so. But I think there's great profitability and wisdom to examine what God called Israel to do and for our civil leaders to model civil government today, even after some of those principles. I'm not here arguing for what is called theonomy. Theonomy is that view that says all governments that exist in the world should just employ what we have in Genesis through Deuteronomy. I don't think that's what we should do, but I think we should at least consider this revelation God has given us as profitable for organizing civil government and restraining evil in the culture. Secondly, the law of Moses is obviously continuing continuing to be profitable in the area of evangelism, in evangelism. As I referenced earlier, Galatians 3 says that the law shuts up the sinner. Maybe some of you follow Ray Comfort's ministry, Living Waters, where he goes around and talks to people on the street all the time about the gospel, and he's got the same kind of order of business every time. He takes them to the law, and you know, he gets a conversation going and says, well, can I, can I measure if you're a good person by the Ten Commandments? And he goes and he asks them, have you ever told a lie? What does that make you? Well, they have to say, a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? What does that make you? A thief. And he just brings out the law, and it nails every one of us to the wall. You can just pick one of the Ten Commandments, and we're toast, okay? So the law in evangelism is very profitable as a means of shutting up the sinner. It's a way of giving the sinner bad news first, because someone in the flesh is never going to appreciate the good news of the person and work of Christ if he or she does not understand why we need good news. There has to be bad news. And listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen to what he says here. We know that the law is good if, here's a contingency, if one uses it lawfully. Well, what does he mean? Verse 9, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and he goes on and on. The law used lawfully is recognizing that it was made for a lawless and rebellious people. And so in evangelism, the law is 
quite profitable. So there it is, the profitability in our communities, thinking about civil governments, the profitability in our communities, thinking about our evangelism. But what about in the church? How should the law be uh, used, understood, applied, approached in the church? Well, thirdly, I see the law of Moses, the law of Moses as profitable as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. There are principles of the law that we can certainly glean and apply today, aren't there? Now, some, of course, are a lot harder. <laughs> some are, are much more difficult because we are not Israel living at that time with those culturally conditioned commands for some of them. For instance, not weaving uh, two fabrics together, two different fabrics together. How do you apply that one today that was given to Israel? And some of them you may not be able to find application uh, as you do your study. But is it still profitable Scripture? Yes. And are there still at least general principles that you can take from even passages like that? Yes. Let us not forget that as a promise in the New Covenant, God says He was going to write His law on the hearts of the people. God was going to write His law on people's hearts in the New Covenant. Well, Jesus comes along, the New Covenant initiated with His blood, and we are partakers of a new covenant in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that means from the moment of your born-again experience, you had all 613 laws written on your heart, right? I don't think so. What about that, that command about if you come across a bush and there's a mother bird with her young, you can take the young but leave the mother bird. Was that written on your heart day one you became a Christian? Some of you are wondering where that even is in the Bible. It's in there, okay? It's in the law. So what do we do with, with this idea if the law is written on our hearts, but that's not written on our heart? Well, there are different ways of explaining this. Uh, I think the one that is most compelling is the law Christologized. The law as it is in the person of Christ as we observe His ministry in the Gospels. Remember how Christ summed up the law? Love God and love your neighbor. All the commandments hang on that. So through the teaching of Christ, with Him giving that to us, that should be written on our hearts from day one of being a Christian. A newfound love, an appreciation for God, and a love and a respect for people as well. The law, through the person of Christ, is applied to our lives, written in our hearts, and profitable for us as we study it and seek to apply it to our lives. The big idea is that in the church, as a Christian today, the law is not law for us. The law is no longer law. But instead, the law has graduated. Something has faded away. And that condemning power, the punishments that came with the law, the rule, the governing authority over the covenant people, that has faded away and been replaced with Jesus. So you can think of it this way. It's a, an illustration that I worked over in my mind for quite a while last night and this morning, and I'm sure one of you will find some sort of hole with it. But recognize that every illustration will break down at some point, so hopefully you get the gist. Uh, when I uh, moved, first moved to Utah and I was working in the corporate world, uh, I eventually got to the place in my company where I was leading a sales team, and I reported directly to the CEO, who at that time... Uh, was the founder of the company. Uh, the founder of the company was functioning as the CEO 
for this business. And I reported directly to the CEO. Well, there came a point in time where he retired, kind of. He was still the founder of the company. He was still around, but he was the president of the board. He was no longer in the day-to-day operation as CEO. I didn't report to him anymore. I had a new CEO I reported to. He no longer was the one who would fire me if I did something nefarious, but he was a new role within the company. And I think in this basic illustration, we can understand how the role of the law has changed in God's program. The role of the law now has a different function among God's covenant people than it did before. The law doesn't come to us to kill us, to lead us to Christ anymore. Christ has come, faith has come, and you are no longer under a guardian. Now, is the law still around? Well, yeah, but the role, the function has changed. Should the law still be consulted and read as profitable scripture? Well, yes, just like my my former boss, was he still around and should he be consulted? As the founder of the company, you better believe he should be consulted about stuff. And he has all kinds of wisdom to share. But the function is different. Just as that man was no longer able to fire me, so the law can no longer condemn you. The law can no longer kill you. The law no longer has a function among God's covenant people to lead us into more and more sin as we're awaiting our Savior. But the Savior has come, and now we see the law through the lens of His finished work. Law ceases to be law without the punishments that come with it. Uh, I want to remind you of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, 18. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Do you fear the law? If you're in Christ, you shouldn't. There's no punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. There's no punishment for you. Perfect love has cast out fear. If you had as your main obligation, as the Israelites did, these tablets of stone, the function of the law within an old covenant, you should fear. But you've been set free in Christ. You've been made new and you've been transformed by God. Do I go to the next part of my sermon and do I stop short again? Tyler, what do you say? Okay, all right. (laughs) I don't know what that says about this sermon, but I'll roll with that. And next week, we'll pick up there, uh, and hopefully I won't have to file another extension to keep talking about this, okay? Well, let's pray, and uh, we'll close in song. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've had in your Word, and thank you for the grace and the freedom that we have in Jesus. Thank you for giving us uh, a new obligation, a better and higher power in person, Jesus Christ, Please, as we enjoy the blessings of this new covenant, take us deeper and deeper into the grace that you've given, that we would enjoy more and more of this life because of what you've done, that we would walk with you day by day, that we'd experience the transforming power of your Spirit, not looking to that which condemns day by day, but looking to the life-giving Spirit and functioning as ministers of the Spirit in a new covenant. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you for how you've led us into this study through your word, and we ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen.